Welcome to the Not In Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Not In Business School, so listen, learn, enjoy, and share. to another episode of the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders podcast with me, Mike Sassy. Penny Briscoe, OBE, has been the driving force behind Paralympics GB for more than two decades. As Director of Sport at the British Paralympics Association, she's played a pivotal role in shaping the team's remarkable achievements and ensuring athletes with disabilities have the opportunity to excel on the world stage. Under her leadership, the Paralympics GB team has been hugely successful at both Tokyo 2020 and Rio 2016, where it ended up second in the overall middles table. Penny's passion for inclusivity and her unwavering commitment to the Paralympic movement have won her respect across the globe. They've also helped Britain become one of the most successful teams in the world. This summer at Paris 2024, Penny, who lives in Nottingham, will again be team manager or chef de mission to use her full title. So Penny Briscoe, um, it's a great pleasure to welcome you here to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast. Great to be here. So um, thanks for sparing your time because I know you've been very busy. <laughs> um, how's it going? Yeah, it's, it's going well. Um, we're sort of just about uh, seven months to go to the opening ceremony of the Paris 2024 Paralympics. And there's, there's some strange phenomena that as the clock ticks into that first moment of the games year, everything seems to, to change. It's been busy, but then it, it seems to get even busier. So I've been back at my desk a month and, and it's just been full on. I've did uh, what I'd one trip to Paris last week. I'm going back out this week, um, and we're always juggling multiple games. So we're not just focusing on Paris. We've got Milan Cortina as the next Winter Games, and I'm currently writing our best prepared team strategy for the LA 2028 games. So it's never dull. So, you, so you're juggling? <laughs> I'm absolutely yeah, very good at juggling. It's a, a skill that I've developed over over multiple game cycles. But yeah. Paris is, Paris is looking good. Um, I think that it's been a really interesting cycle in terms of we're very used to working in sort of four, five, six year cycles. So we could be on the ground five or six years ahead. And obviously with the, the, the sort of um, the COVID impact on, on Tokyo and the games being pushed into 21, in effect, we lost a year of the Paris planning cycle. So it's been a truncated cycle. Um, I think we learned learned an awful lot in the Tokyo cycle in terms of ripping up plans and starting again and, and just actually being comfortable with that and being confident in, our, I guess, our own ability to, to re-plan and, and re regroup. Um, so, yeah, Paris is looking really, really positive and I know the athletes are really excited, as are their families and friends, because, you know, it was a very quiet games in Tokyo yes. with no fans in the, in the stadium. Behind closed doors. Behind closed doors. So with the proximity of Paris, we're hoping there's going to be lots and lots of Brits in, in the Paris environment and, uh, and cheering us all on. Indeed. Now, as chef de mission, you were very successful in, in, in Tokyo and in Rio. Um, what are the particular leadership pressures of your role? 
I think, I mean, the leadership starts, you know, a significant period out, both in terms of my director of sport role, in terms of I lead Paralympics GB's best prepared team strategy. So how do we go into every games knowing the environment, being ready for the environment? Because every games is different, whether it's heat and humidity, whether it's the culture of the of the different host cities, whether the different competition programs, sport programs. So, you know, it, that, that leadership journey is, is a long one. It, it doesn't just get plonked on you. Here's, here's your folder. Take the team to the games this week. It's a long week. way out as well, isn't it? I mean, you yeah. start preparing for this year's games in... Well, five, around five to six years. So we try, once the host city is announced, to get on the ground, get yeah. our towels down, if you like, um, and just really, I guess, embed ourselves in the culture, find out, you know, make those relationships that ultimately come round to, to sort of hopefully bear dividends you know, at games time. So it's a long journey. Um, for me, it starts with how do we build a team? So we're bringing 23 different sport programs together, you know, between 250, 300 athletes, another sort of similar number of staff. So we go from a very small um, BPA team support of around 40 people and we grow that team to, you know, well in excess of 600. So it starts with team identity and culture. You know, what are our standards? What are our expectations? How do we want to turn up as a Paralympics so GB? So how do you lay that down over a period of four or five years? 250, 300 people, I think you were talking about there. How do you, how do you set, set down what you want? I think the obviously part of being a leader is your, your vision. Um, and I think I have a, a very clear vision in terms of how I think, you know, Paralympics GB should turn up to the Games. And, you know, we're a world leading nation on the field of play, but I also expect us to be a world leading nation off the field of play. So it's everything that we do in terms of, I guess, our standards of behaviour, how we engage with the, the different stakeholders, uh, how we compete, how we deliver our individual roles as staff members. Um, we did a brilliant piece of work going into, into uh, Tokyo with our Athletes Commission called Winning Behaviours. So rather than having a code of conduct, I wanted to flip that on its head rather than what we won't do or what you can't do as a team member, what we will do. So, you know, what, what we want to see, what we want to hear, what we want to feel and, and what we commit to. Because that's interesting because there, was, there were a lot of uh, worries complaints, a bit of griping from, from teams around the world at previous games. And I noticed that, and, and you made a big point of not getting involved in that. I've seen, I've always I'm trying to get your, I kept seeing British Paralympians in front of the camera, always accentuating the positive, always saying, well, yes, you know, whether it was accommodation or it was facilities or whatever, that was all part of it. Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah, I think you're referring to, obviously, Rio and Tokyo were different games, but the challenge with Rio was, was the city going bankrupt? Were the Paralympics even going to happen? Uh, was the village and venues going to be ready? And uh, I think in terms of my leadership in Rio, uh, it, there was a deliberate move for me to be on the ground early to try and quell some of the disquiet and, and feed positive messaging back into to the team in the UK. Um, but there were some challenges and uh, I think as a leader, you want to try and absorb those and, and dissipate the, the, the challenges rather than put them onto other people. So we just had a plan in terms of me and my, my senior leadership team that when the athletes arrived, it would 
our, our accommodation, our building would look like a home from home. And, and uh, there was a lot of hard work that went on behind the scenes. But when the, when the athletes arrived, they wondered what the, 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 you know, the noise was all about because we had a brilliant accommodation. And whilst other nations were bashing the organising committee, um, we tried to work with the organising committee and we've got the resource to be able to do that. But for me, never dwell on the negatives, just, just try and take control and, and create the best possible environment that you can. And do you think that impacts in the, at the end of the medals tables, both, both Paralympics, you were second in the medals table, what, 250, 300 medals perhaps? Do you think that is all part, has an impact, it feeds into that? I think there's a there's a bigger picture to understand in terms of the role that I play and, and my team contributes to is that we are we have a strategy that talks about building the team we have a strategy that talks about understanding the environment so that we all go in with the right toolkit to be able to deliver we talk about being ready so games ready for our roles for the environment for the team and we have a, a very unique role in terms of leading and creating the environment so it all of that hard work, five, six years, whatever it might be, we create the environments where 23 different sport teams can thrive. So we talk about thriving in the team environment. So that's very much, you know, the, the work that, that we do. And on a day-to-day -day basis, it's the work of the national governing bodies, the performance directors, uh, the head coaches, the scientists, the administrators, uh, the medics. So it's very much a team effort in terms of, you know, the, the sports leading their preparation and, and competition programs and then us coming together as a one. But without that being a sort of harmonious one, I think it's very difficult for for us to deliver that ambition, which is for us to thrive in environment and for us to have a positive team experience, as well as obviously being successful. So we don't just talk about success. So we want to perform well, but it's the how of our what. So do we win well? Do we have a positive team experience? And, and do we, we carry ourselves as that world leading team on and off the field of play? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning for yourself and your, and your leadership. Um, while you were at school, university, uh, you canoed for Britain, uh, international, you were an international sportswoman yourself, then you went into a bit of uh, secondary school teaching, but then you went back to be an international coach. How long did it take you to decide what you really wanted to do? I think from a very early age, I love sport. I'm an absolute sports nut. I play it, I watch it, I, you know, I'm, I'm a parent of kids that do sport and have, have, have done sport um, all their lives. So I think I've, I really value sport, both in terms of, you know, I guess the societal impact that sport has and, you know, I, I guess in this day and age as well, health and well-being, both physical and mental, sport can play a huge role in, in that. So um, I really do believe in, in the power of sport. Um, back in the day when I was a, a sort of a mid-teenager, there weren't too many options. I, I wanted to do something to do with sport, um, but you really had sort of to be a PE teacher or maybe a physio. I definitely wasn't sort of intelligent enough to be a medic or anything like that. But did you know that you'd... How do I put this by being crude? How, did you know you'd be in charge? <laughs> did, you, did you know you'd be, people would look up to you? Um, I've got some old pictures, probably from when I was 9, 10, 11, and I was the team captain at netball, right, and I'm there right. in the middle of the picture with a ball. Right. And maybe, you know, uh, that th th that was, 
I guess, the start of something that hadn't wasn't necessarily planned, but clearly I enjoyed being a leader. Um, maybe I was a little bit bossy and, you know, I've certainly had to evolve in terms of my thinking and I'm not always right and, 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 and. Um, but yeah, so I went down the teaching route because I, I'd done some coaching alongside my paddling um, and I obviously did a, a, a PGC at Loughborough. I did my teaching practice at West Bridgeford School, oh. um, had, a, had a brilliant time there and, and that transition into a, a sort of a teaching role was, was quite easy. Um, but I think that I didn't achieve what I wanted to do as an athlete. I never made the Olympics as an athlete. I competed for GB, um, but I didn't make that, you know, the, the, that was the pinnacle. So you're driven by a bit of unfinished business there? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in 1996, a uh, part-time, not a part-time, a short-term contract uh, came up at British Canoeing and I'd, I'd been doing some coaching with the under the under 18s, under 23s, done some work at our home um, world championships in 1995 um, with the team and uh, I got that role and it was a it was a huge leap of faith and I think it, it wasn't something I'd done as an athlete so I never committed to training full-time as an athlete and you get into that lifestyle of you get your first job, you buy a car, there always seems to be commitments and I, I never sort of was able to reel back from that. So you're training early, you're training late, it's not optimal. And, and I guess I, I sort of had regrets in terms of how I went about my sort of career as an athlete. But you're taking a chance going from a, a very clear, permanent, potentially permanent job, clear teaching pathway to yeah. taking a chance on a temporary contract. Yeah, I loved my sport. You know, it was all about an opportunity to be a coach, a professional coach in my sport. A leader. And, and, you know, I guess a step on, a, on, the, on the ladder of, of leadership. Um, and it was an incredible year. You know, we spent so many days away in, in America training and, and getting ready for Atlanta. And, and I knew that, that sort of I wanted to try and stay in sport rather than in education if, if I could. And there was a sort of an interim period of uncertainty where what you know was my contract going to be extended and and it, and it wasn't for a little while but then lottery funding came in and British canoeing was successful um, we got you know onto that sort of lottery uh, funding award system um, and then you know I had a permanent contract and and sort of the rest is history really. So you were appointed director of the British Paralympic Association in the early 2000s um, um, you were at the, at the top of your at the top of your profession. There weren't many women in administrative roles within within um, within sport, <laughs> able-bodied or Paralympic. How was that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're you're right, Mike. I think that even when I was in canoeing and coaching, there were so few females. You know, I think I was was one of the few globally to be working on the sort of the circuit, if you like. Um, you found a few more physios, going back to my, you teach or you're a physio. Um, and then when I came across to Paralympics GB in 2001, I, was, I had a manager post and my director left. Uh, and I was kind of in the driving seat really. Uh, but I do think it's sometimes to do with timing, that at that point in Paralympic sport, 
that there wasn't the profile and, and there were great athletes, there were great people, committed, passionate people, um, but there were two full-time roles in all of our sports at that time, one in athletics, um, technical director, one in, in swimming, in, in para sport, yeah, and they were both males. Mm, okay. So for me to sort of secure that, that directorship was, I think, significant. Um, but I think it was also a reflection on the movement, the Paralympic movement. It's a very welcoming movement. Um, it's very inclusive by definition. It's, a dif it's different culturally. It's different structurally to, to the Olympic and, and professional st uh, sport structures. But that's a role which you have shaped, haven't you? Because you've done it for 20 years. It was, it was it, you've explained how it was a, uh, in, in early days, it was, it was out on its own, but now you've built it into what it is. Yeah, I think I just felt, I suppose, a different set of emotions. When I first arrived, I, I just assumed that Paralympic, Olympic were sort of parallel universes. But what I hadn't picked, necessarily picked up is that the Olympic history was probably 100 years longer than the Paralympic history. Um, and therefore it was far more developmental and, and those first few months as a manager it was like crikey this is a bit sport development and I'm not sure that's my skill set and, and I did have some worries that I wasn't going to be able to sort of have an impact and it was a case of well I can either moan and groan and or, or roll my sleeves up step inside into that sort of uncertain environment and try and make a difference and and I guess I've been striving to ensure parity in terms of the level of support for para-athletes, um, the sort of the, the, the expertise to be able to ensure that the programmes and support and the funding are, are, are equitable uh, to those on the, on the Olympic programmes. So, and, and an important part of that success has been your role as, as chef de mission at, uh, at, at the two Paralympics. Um, what difference have you brought, did you bring in that role? I think from my perspective, it's been very much about creating environments where both athletes and staff can thrive, N never underestimating the hard work that goes into that journey and wanting to ensure that we as, as Paralympics GB uh, actually create those environments where people can thrive and they can have a positive team experience and and I, and I guess having that vision and wanting to pull out all the stops so whether you're an athlete or a, or a staff team member you can deliver your personal bests you can you know you can achieve and deliver against your dreams and and that is 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 a hugely powerful driving force you must love it. <laughs> I remember that sounds like, a, I, I, I don't mean to be trite, but your leadership is, is based on being a great team manager. You've, you've talked and written about being a, a people person, about taking on a role that you love. You've done it for, well, you've done the overall Paralympics as, uh, for, for 20 years, but as, as, as team manager at, at, at the last two Olympics, very, very successful. Is that an important part of it? The fact that you love it so much that you live and breathe it? I love sport and I love the games, whether it's the two Olympic games that I did as, as senior national coach in Atlanta and Sydney, uh, and then the, however, I think it's 11 Paralympic Games, summer and winter. Um, and just a sort of little anecdote, I was in Vancouver in 2010 and it was just set up period, the athletes weren't in yet. 
and I, I realized, I stopped, I was walking around the village and I realized I was kind of bouncing. And, and I think it just sort of struck home how much I really enjoyed the game's environment uh, and building, you know, for that moment where, you know, we create those incredible environments that are, you know, the, whether it be the pre-games prep or, or the, the games time environments themselves that, you know, really hopefully add value to athlete preparation and performance. Um, so every game is different, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to travel to North America and Europe and Asia. Uh, I love sort of being in different countries and sort of pitting your wits against the different, against, with the different cultures. So how do you, how do you, I guess, navigate to ensure that the outcomes that you're looking for are best for the team? So that can be challenging with different cultures and that is in itself is, is brilliant. And every team is different. You know, I don't know how many athletes I've had the, the honour of, of leading and, and, and working for, um, but it's probably, you know, at least a thousand yes. in terms of, there's about 50% turnover of athletes and staff every games. Um, and I think just, it feels like a, a real family parasport. And, you know, there's athletes I've known and staff members for 20 years, and they do feel like, you know, were part of a family and, and seeing how they've grown. You know, even Rich Whitehead, you know, obviously famous yes. Nottingham athlete. I first Gold met him in, from, from Loudoun. In, in 2006 and he was playing ice sledge hockey. And then, you know, he transformed himself into obviously a marathon runner and then a sprinter. And, and just being, just feel really privileged to be part of, of these athlete journeys and to see how they grow as humans as well as, as, as athletes. Okay. I just want to ask you about dealing with disappointment because it, there was a, there was, was one blip you wanted to be a chef de mission in 2012 you didn't get that job and you i think i've read something that you've written where you went back and had a reassessment because you wanted that role and it didn't quite work out for you you dealt with that came back even stronger subsequent olympics and um, i know that leaders often struggle to 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 deal with with change and disappointment how did you do that yeah, so the, the context there is that we got a new CEO in, in 2011. The previous CEO had been chef de mission, so it sort of combined a, a sort of business role with a team role. Uh, and our, our uh, chief exec in, in 2011 decided, that's not my skill set, I want to focus on the business. Um, great communicator, um, wanted to do both sort of national, international relations. So I, I thought I'd put forward a really strong case in terms of his options, if it wasn't going to be him, who it might be. And, uh, and ultimately, you make a he made a decision that, that didn't go in my favour. And I was just absolutely gutted. Um, you know, it was our home games. Could you imagine leading the team in London, leading the team out in, in a stadium filled with 100,000 adoring uh, fans? And, um, and it, it sort of like, it, it sort of rocked me. Um, and I did take a, a few moments to reflect. And, and what it ultimately came down to is, what a hypocrite I would have been if I'd have walked away at that stage because I love parasport. I love everything about the movement. And, you know, our home games was 
hugely significant in terms of raising, I knew it was going to be hugely significant in terms of raising the profile of, of, of our athletes, of, of the, the British team, of the movement. And to have walked away at that stage would have, you know, my authenticity would be, would have been questioned. So it was just, it was just a, 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 you know, how long did it take you in physical time to, to grit your teeth and, and get on with it? <laughs> not very long, not very long. I got, I got over it, you know. At the end of the day, you know, it, to be a good leader, it, it's not about you, it's about the team, it's about other people. And, and it's, it's about, I, I guess, continuing to contribute. And so I just set my stall out that I was going to continue to be the best director of sport I could be, the best deputy chef demission that I could be. And, uh, and, and to see and what happens. And you obviously did very well because <laughs> subsequently <laughs> you were ragingly successful. Yeah, and the guy that didn't recruit me in, in 12 um, then appointed me in, in 14. And, and it was, I can remember it to this day, he offered me the job in Starbucks in Birmingham New Street. And I did have a little cry. And, uh, and that was just, for me, just a dream come true to, to lead one of the, the foremost global sports teams. Uh, and it, it was a dream come true. What a, what a fantastic story to say why you should, you know, get over your minor disappointments, grit your teeth, carry on. Wow. Exactly. So, as you know, this is a podcast on behalf of the Nottingham Business School, um, uh, where there are many leaders and would-be leaders. If you were to offer one piece of final advice, leadership advice to all those people, what might that be? I mean, I think leaders evolve. I'm a different leader now than, than that sort of 11-year-old kid holding a netball and, and you know, there's a lot, a lot of water's gone under the bridge, so learn from your experiences. I think that the whole, the, the, the whole principle of valuing others is, 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 is absolutely mission critical. I think emotional intelligence in leadership, so know yourself but know your team. And I, I think just be authentic. I think from my perspective, I bring some real old fashioned values into my leadership style. So treat others how you'd like to be treated yourself. You know, punctuality, good manners, be courteous. Uh, but I also think, you know, that authenticity and if, if, if it stops feeling really great to be a leader, then you're probably not doing justice to yourself or to the team that you're trying to develop because ultimately leadership is about developing others, taking them on that journey, inspiring, creating a next generation of leaders. And I know there are at least half a dozen, if not more people who are more than capable of stepping into my shoes at Paralympics GB. So always keep an eye on who's coming up as well and, and just never be complacent. So, so yes. And, uh, and, and perhaps be uh, always looking towards the next leader, bringing on the next leader. Absolutely. I mean, that, that is an integral part I see it as, as my role, to inspire that next generation uh, of leaders, but also supporters. You know, it's an incredible movement to, to be part of. I feel hugely proud. Never, never lose sight of, of the privilege of being a leader. Uh, and, and, you know, just continue to, to look ahead, look to the future, and, um, and to being as good as you can be every single day. Penny Briscoe, chef de mission of Paralympics GB. Um, good luck in Paris, and thanks very, very much for being our guest on the Not Your Bit School Business Leaders podcast. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with the chair of the FA, Debbie Hewitt, England Women's Rugby World Cup winner, Maggie Alfonsi, MBE, and the Vice-Chancellor of Nottingham Trent University, Professor Edward Peck, CBE. 
The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy and your producer was John Collins. 